the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 12. CFIUS, How the U.S. Monitors Foreign Investments in Sensitive Industries. Talking with Professor Sarah Bowerly Dansman. Our guest today is Sarah Bowerly Dansman, Associate Professor of Global and International Studies at the Hamilton Luger School, Indiana University. She joins us from her office in Bloomington. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for having me today. My pleasure. Sarah, please take a moment to share your biography with our listeners. Sure. I am a political scientist with a focus on international political economy, particularly the politics of foreign direct investment. And I also have experience in U.S. government working on these issues. So in 2019 and 2020, I was a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow, and I used that year in that fellowship to work for the U.S. State Department in the Office of Investment Affairs, which is the office at state that represents state on the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. And I did that to better understand this growing concerns about the intersection of national security and investment policy. In addition to my academic job here at the Hamilton Luger School, I also am a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Mm -hmm. Very impressive. Well, Sarah, President Biden recently issued an executive order restricting U.S. technology exports to China. It seems that we're becoming more wary about sharing sensitive technology with China and with other countries. What is CFIUS? What does it do? What investments are covered? And how is it triggered? So we are definitely in a new era of geoeconomic competition and increasing regulations around national security concerns. So CFIUS, or the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, is the oldest tool in this toolbox in in many respects. So CFIUS was created by an executive order in 1975, and it has grown over the years to be kind of the foremost way in which the U.S. government considers potential national security implications of investments into the United States. Most recently, in 2018, it was updated through an act of Congress, which was called FIRMA. FIRMA, which is the Foreign Investment Review Modernization or Risk Review Modernization Act, Mm -hmm. was a bipartisan bill that passed overwhelmingly and that expanded CFIUS authorities. So what CFIUS does is it has jurisdiction over transactions of investments into the United States that are considered to be direct investments or controlling investments. Typically, this means around 10%, right? So the idea is that it's not a portfolio flow, but instead an investment that confers some amount of control Mm -hmm. over the operations to the investor. 
CFIUS covers any investment in any in any industry in which a foreign entity gains control over a U.S. business. And so it's very broad in terms of what it can cover. And the idea is that CFIUS reviews these transactions for potential national security implications. And if it finds a national security risk that arises from the transaction, it can either negotiate with the parties to find some sort of mitigation in order to lower the risk of the transaction and thereby allow it to proceed, or it can recommend that the president prohibit the transaction if the committee does not think that a mitigation plan would is possible or if the parties refuse to negotiate over a mitigation agreement. But CFIUS has very rarely kind of ended in a formal presidential prohibition, only seven times over mm-hmm. the course of its lengthy existence has there been a formal presidential prohibition. Finally, through FIRMA, which I mentioned previously, FIRMA expanded authorities of CFIUS in some important ways. So the most important thing that it did is it created a subset of types of transactions where CFIUS could have authority to review transactions even if they did not rise to the level of control. So here, CFIUS has basically created a carve-out in which U.S. businesses involved in critical infrastructure, critical technology, or sensitive personal data, all of which are defined in statute. Um, If there's a U.S. business involved in any of those areas, then the committee can review even non-controlling investments if those investments confer some kind of additional right to the investors that rises above just passive investment. The best way to think about this is kind of non-voting observer status on a board. Mm-hmm. And finally, FIRMA also extended some of CFIUS's authority as well to certain types of real estate transactions, which previously were not covered. And basically, now CFIUS can review transactions for real estate when a foreign entity is buying U.S. real estate if it is close to sensitive sites, which are mainly defense sites. Mm-hmm. Well, that happened recently, I believe, in, uh, was it North Dakota, where a Chinese entity was buying up uh, was buying up land adjacent to U.S. Air Force missile sites, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. So there was an issue that has been reported quite a bit in the news recently uh, around this particular kind of concerns over what we frequently call co-location concerns. In the end, CFIUS determined that it did not actually have jurisdiction over that particular transaction. And that had to do with how far away the site was from the list of sites that are considered sensitive to the U.S. government through statute. In the FIRMA implementing regulations, there's actually an appendix that lists all of these sites and circumferences around them where CFIUS has jurisdiction. Because of 
the way that that transaction proceeded, there are you know now interest in Congress to expand some of Cepheus's authorities even more in order to allow them to have greater capability to re- review transactions such as that one. Now, of course, Cepheus deals with inbound foreign direct investment where a foreign investor in China and Europe, uh, Asia, whatever, is looking to acquire or make an investment in a U.S. company. Now, the recent executive order by President Biden goes the other way. This would be U.S. companies that would be looking to make investments in sensitive Chinese companies. Could you speak to that? Because it sounds as though, you know, on the one hand, Cepheus is dealing with inbound investment. On the other hand, President Biden, with his recent executive order, is dealing with outbound investment. This sort of speaks back to how we started the discussion by talking about how there's just a rapid expansion of regulatory authorities in the U.S. related to these economic issues that are thought about now in national security terms. So to under, so the new executive order that the administration released just a few weeks ago creates a new regulatory authority that will, when the implementing regulations come into effect, will require U.S. companies that are investing in China to notify the government of, in quite a bit of detail of the transaction if they are in a subset of um, certain types of semiconductor mm. technologies and AI technologies. And then the executive order also creates prohibitions around U.S. investment into China if that investment would go into very advanced semiconductor technologies or into quantum computing and perhaps into certain types of AI investments as well. Mm-hmm. So that's what that executive order will end up doing. But to understand why the administration got to that point, it's important to kind of have a better, have a kind of deeper understanding of what how CFIUS has changed over the years, especially as it relates to to sensitive technologies and how the toolkit for the administration, for the U.S. government around these national security concerns associated with sensitive technologies have also expanded. In the past, CFIUS has really was really seen as mostly dealing with issues related to the de- defense supply chain mm-hmm. and kind of starting in the mid-2000s, also concerns around sensitive infrastructure. But FIRMA really placed sensitive technologies as central to the concerns that CFIUS has. And it's important as well to kind of put this in the context of what was happening in China at this time, specifically with the PRC's kind of implementation of Made in China 2025 and a general kind of sense that the Chinese government was trying to use U.S. investors and U.S. technology to indigenize tech development and tech production, especially up the technology chain in China, and how that also intersected with an interest in in China to modernize their military. And so that kind of intersection of technology and 
the and military capabilities has been there from kind of the start of this discussion in Washington. So when FIRMA was passed, that's why there was a great emphasis on sensitive technologies. There was that kind of new requirement that or new ability for the U.S. government to review even non-controlling transactions if they were in sensitive technology areas. At the time, the, the first version of FIRMA that was originally that was originally introduced had also um, a component that would allow CFIUS to review outbound investment as well as inbound. But at the time, there was a lot of pushback for this particular component of the proposed legislation. And so the compromise was to instead increase export control authorities and instead kind of deal with outbound concerns by putting export controls on sensitive technologies so that they couldn't be exported to China. Over time, and we can talk more about why this is the case, but there was growing concern that this export control kind of strategy was leaving too many, was creating too many workarounds. Mm -hmm. And so that's why there's been this increased interest in, in also having regulation that is specific to outbound investment. Well, our conversation is, uh, is very timely because U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimundo arrived in China, I think it was yesterday, and she's there on a four-day visit. It's the first time in seven years that a U.S. Commerce Secretary has been in China. And I guess she has to walk a tightrope. On the one hand, she's talking about continuing to develop trade links with China. But on the other hand, she was very clear that when it comes to exports or investments in sensitive national security companies or technology, that that is going to be, it's going to be controlled, that's going to be reviewed. Could you give us a sense of her trip, her mandate, and the tightrope that she's walking between, on the one hand, telling the Chinese that, yes, we're open for business, we want to do business with you, but there's this whole area over here of sensitive technology that we're going to control and we're not going to share with you. That's got to be a pretty tough mandate. Yes, it is. <laughs> and <laughs> so here's how I would think about it. So the administration's viewpoint here is that they want to make sure that the regulations that they're putting in place are specific to national security concerns. Mm -hmm. These are not these types of regulations are not supposed to be used for broader kind of economic competition reasons or even really indicate a abandonment of kind of general market principles around open markets. Mm -hmm. It's really important to remember that one of the ways that the U.S. and its advanced technology companies have stayed at the frontier of innovation have has been through being kind of market dominant globally, mm -hmm. which has allowed them to amass the resources that they need for the research and development to stay on that innovation frontier. So the administration does not want to communicate what some call a hard decoupling between the U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. 
but instead is really trying to create a regulatory framework that is oftentimes referred to as a narrow yard with high fences. So the idea behind here is that we're not going to control lots and lots of the economy, but there are some areas that are really highly sensitive and we are going to control those and we're going to put really quite restrictive rules around them, but we're going to try to keep that very small. Mm-hmm. That is why, for instance, this outbound investment executive order really focused only on three areas, three technologies of concern, advanced semiconductors, quantum computing, and AI, although AI is a pretty broad yes. category, mm-hmm. uh, which speaks to some of the problems that we have going on here at, at this point, right? The originally kind of, if we step back to see sort of what kind of got the ball rolling on outbound investment, um, there was a lot of interest in the U.S. Congress to do outbound investment screening among a, a much larger range of sectors and activities. And so this EO is much narrower than the original proposal had been, right? So there is this interest in trying to keep the the yard that needs to be overseen very small. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that these technologies are what we call dual-use technologies, Mm -hmm. meaning that they have both commercial applications and they also have military applications. And that has really been a hallmark of the way that the U.S. military has been involved in innovation is that They want to create opportunities for there to be these kinds of dual-use technologies because when there are much bigger markets for items rather than just the U.S. military, then there's going to be more interest in innovating in these markets because they will be be larger markets than they would be if it was just the U.S. military that was the only buyer in these markets. And so in the U.S. context, we have this kind of dual use, this big dual, dual use market that the military relies on for its acquisition and sustainment and also for there to be enough revenue and enough profits in these industries that they can actually continue to invest in R&D. And then on the Chinese side, with this move towards military modernization, made in China 2025, military civil fusion, which is this idea of of um, sharing much more of the technology that's developed even by private companies in China with with the military, that this becomes kind of hard to sustain because dual-use categories are growing and because there are real national security concerns. So, I mean, chips are in everything. Mm -hmm. So the kind of whether this kind of small yard is going to be able to stay small is going to depend on how binding the technical specifications of what counts as advanced semiconductors Mm -hmm. stay small, how we define what are the types of AI technologies that are most concerning from a national security perspective, and how those categories change over time. And so to bring it back to the secretary's 
trip, what she really has to do is try to find where are the openings for continued win-win, I mean, not to use the Chinese talking points um, (laughs) for that, right? But where there are opportunities for cooperation, where there are economic activities that really don't have large national security spillovers. Mm -hmm. And those continue, the, the problem is that there's so much interest in these higher tech fields that we're kind of left with are the more consumer facing products. And there are reasons why U.S. firms want to be involved in U.S. in Chinese consumer product markets, but also reasons why the Chinese want to reserve that more for their own companies. So it's hard. It is indeed. Let's let's just come back to the the dual use military civilian use. Maybe to step back for a minute, the People's Liberation Army in China, which is coming up on its uh, centenary, I believe, in the next couple of years, the People's Liberation Army in China was established to essentially keep the Communist Party in power, and it plays a very different role from, say, armed forces in the West, in the United States and Western Europe. So to the extent that that is the... uh, one of the primary goals of the People's Liberation Army, and that includes the Air Force, the Navy, the Coast Guard, as well as the Army. That goal of keeping the Communist Party in power is one that it, it kind of underscores why the United States is so sensitive about the sharing of dual-use technology with the with China, because ultimately. If the role of the PLA is to keep the Communist Party in power, that's certainly not a goal of U.S. foreign policy. I'm just thinking aloud there. I just wanted to raise that point to our listeners in case our listeners are saying, why are we so focused on on China and dual use? Uh, any, any thoughts about that, Sarah? Sure. Well, I think that this helps to underscore the blurred distinction between the use of military force and surveillance technologies internally versus for international or external reasons. Mm -hmm. It is certainly the case that the U.S. does not want its technology being used to further of techno-surveillance, techno-authoritarianism. We see that with the regulations that have come into effect around supply chains and Mm -hmm. forced labor in in Uyghurs, and also with concerns. I mean, this is one of the reasons why AI, facial recognition software, is oftentimes a point of concern, because we see use cases that have important kind of internal human rights concerns, but also because we also see a market in other countries for these technologies to be sold to these other countries for other kind of repressive reasons, which have obviously important broader geopolitical consequences. But I I do think that the US from the US government's perspective there is more of an emphasis on the capabilities of the PLA as a fighting force in external situations mm-hmm. because of concerns in 
that region in terms of the extent to which there are different disputes in territorial waters. Of course, um, the Taiwan is high on everyone's mind and real concerns about kind of increased capabilities by the Chinese and increased use of those capabilities, even in sort of lower level conflict situations can really spill over into higher level conflict and can really destabilize the region in ways that would have long ranging effects. So I think that the fact that military modernization has occurred in the context of what seems to be a much more proactive um, foreign policy and kind of interest in asserting more uh, more authority in the region certainly gives the U.S. government pause. Now, I have to say that I am not a um, military expert and mm-hmm. I'm not a U.S.-China military expert, so I'm merely speaking about the general tenor of the conversation in these policy discussions rather than giving, you know, my expert opinion on the probability of any kind of specific conflict in the region. I fully understand. It seems as though the era of rip-roaring globalization that we saw during the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, it seems as though we're starting a pause or we're going down a, a different a different path, uh, not quite so gung-ho in sharing uh, sharing all of our technology with everyone, and of course, CFIUS and the the executive order are two of the two of the ways that the U.S. will control the export of these sensitive technologies. So yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah, what is the what is to stop a an, a third party, a third country, not China, because we're there are a lot of other countries that we export our uh, technology too. What is to stop a third party, another country, uh, on on its face friendly to the United States, wittingly or unwittingly sharing such techni- such very sensitive technology that we've shared with them knowingly for them to share that wittingly or unwittingly with the Chinese? Is that how do we prevent that from happening? And do these controls speak to that? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. There are kind of multiple ways in to answer that question. So one is that most of U.S. export controls or really all of U.S. export controls are extraterritorial in their reach. And so that means that the U.S. export controls require licenses both for export and re-export, meaning that if we if you are a Korean firm and you want to import U.S. technology that is export controlled into your um, country and then you want to re-export it somewhere else, you need a license for that re-export as well. And so this is actually quite a contentious, a contentious part of U.S. export controls because they do end up controlling the the operations of companies that are not U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. So in a very narrow sense from or a technical sense, there are components of 
export controls, but also different forms of the way that especially inbound investment screening works that covers a larger component of of the economy or of the global economy and of third party actors than maybe would be immediately observable. Mm-hmm. The second part is that the U.S. knows that unlike when we're talking about kind of the central role of the U.S. dollar, where the U.S. dollar is really highly dominant and it's very hard to unseat it, mm-hmm. when it comes to these other forms of technology, there are more obvious ways to um, substitute across U.S. technology to other technologies, or at least over time, come up with alternatives. And so the U.S. is really working with partners and allies to try to act in concert-like fashion, if not always in lockstep. And so that's why you saw with the implementation last year of the October 7th, 2022 controls on semiconductor technology, the U.S. worked closely and um, engaged in a lot of diplomatic efforts to bring the Dutch and the Japanese Mm -hmm. along because the types of technologies that were being controlled are ones in which the Japanese and the and the Dutch have potential alternatives. And so they so the US government worked really hard to bring them along with them. Mm-hmm. With respect to outbound investment, the outbound investment executive order was not announced until after the G7 issued a communique on economic resilience and economic security that specifically mentioned outbound investment regulations as being an appropriate tool for controlling technology. And after the European um, Commission's economic security strategy was released, which also indicated that the commission is planning on tabling a proposal on some kind of outbound mechanism in the EU by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So, um, and with inbound investment with FIRMA, FIRMA also included quite a bit of money for the U.S. government to engage in outreach efforts to partners and allies to help them, to encourage them to develop their own inbound investment screening or to strengthen their existing ones and to help kind of coordinate on best practices around that. And so we have seen a pretty substantial proliferation of inbound investment screening mechanisms among OECD countries and some others, largely driven by EU efforts here, but also driven by U.S. outreach to these partners and allies. And so we do see that the U.S. not only is using kind of these technical ways of hooking more technologies that they can find jurisdictional control over, but also engaging in the time-honored tradition of diplomacy to try to bring others along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, and you've given us a very comprehensive overview of controls, primarily for uh, both inbound and outbound investment. But in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about where we are today and where we're headed? I think that we're at a really important turning point in the way that the global economy is structured and 
the way that governments and firms interact to create governance structures around that. As we've talked about it, it's very clear once you see all of the increasing regulations across multiple jurisdictions regarding inbound investment and very likely outbound investment and now export controls, Mm -hmm. even if they're in kind of key set of technologies, they're in technologies that are often in a lot of even consumer products, right? So this is becoming increasingly a really complicated area for global firms to navigate. Mm-hmm. And as that becomes more costly, complicated, it also becomes more costly. And this is happening in the backdrop of, you know, the WTO becoming increasingly irrelevant uh, mm-hmm. and a search for new forms of governance, whether that be bringing more of these sorts of coordination efforts around economic security measures into the G7, or whether it be last Mm. week's announcement of the expansion of the BRICS, Mm -hmm. right? that there's certainly a lot of interest in trying to figure out as countries are engaging in these kinds of new regulatory measures, how are they going to govern, how are we going to develop these kind of global governance structures so that we can coordinate in some fashion. And then what does that mean when it comes to the viability of truly globally oriented firms? And as those processes play out, that's really very likely going to affect the decisions that firms make in terms of where they locate new operations, how they structure their supply chains, and their and what their global market strategies are. And so I think that this is really going to change the way that businesses operate globally. It's going to very likely change um, the way that governance occurs in the global economy. And that whenever we see those changes, that also means that it's probably going to benefit some and it's probably going to hurt others. And so there will be distributive implications of this as well. Fascinating conversation about this this new world, this, this new wrinkle in the globalization of the world's economy. Sarah, how can our listeners follow you? A website, Twitter, X handle? Yeah, so my website is sarahbowerlydansman.com. So that's quite easy. Um, Bowerly is is B-A-U-E-R-L-E, Dansman, D-A-N-Z-M-A-N. You can also link with me on LinkedIn, same name. I am on Twitter slash X at Sarah Bowerly. I'm kind of not on there as much these days, but I'm keeping my options open by, uh, (laughs) even if I'm not posting uh, quite as frequently as I, I used to be. Well, once again, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, just a great overview of a of a very complex area that uh, U.S. companies and companies that want to do business in the United States or with U.S. companies really need to be on top of and aware of. So, again, thank you for thank you for this overview and this uh, primer. And of course, if listeners have further questions, they can follow up with you both on LinkedIn and at your website. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fantastic.
And for our listeners, today's episode is number 438. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and join our listener audience spanning 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized the San Francisco experience as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Thank you.